Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church Online. Wherever you're joining us from and wherever you're at today, I want to welcome you to our online stream. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Ridge Church. And like I said, wherever you're at, whatever time you might be watching this or listening to this on podcast, uh, we want to welcome you uh, as you participate in the life of our church. And as we continue on in the series we've been doing through the Gospel of John, looking at the life of Jesus. And as as we've done this as a church, that, that was a decision that was made really intentionally because we as a church have values. And maybe you're new to our church or maybe you've been around our church a little bit. And, and one of the questions I'll often get when someone starts visiting our church or checking out our church or, or just getting to know a little bit about what we are about, or even if I just meet someone in our community, in our city, who sees our church as they drive down the highway, or maybe you've stumbled upon this on YouTube or podcast or whatever it may be, a fair question to ask is, what matters to us? What are we all about? What, what is the most important thing? What do you care about? Are, are you about having a big building that looks pretty? Are you about doing a bunch of programs? Like, what is it that you as a church care about? I've been asked uh, recently by someone I know very closely who drove by our church and saw how big the building was and, and said, what do you even do? Not, not to me specifically asking what I do as a job, but asking what we as the church, what do we even do? What are we all about? But if you've been around for a while and if you've listened in, what you hopefully will know, what you hopefully will have heard myself and our other staff and pastors and leaders of this church say is that we have felt, we have discerned that by the word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit, our mission, our vision, why we exist as a church is that our city would know Jesus. That's what we boiled it down to, one sentence that matters most to us. And it's not random and it's not meant to be vague or passive. It's incredibly intentional. Because for many, maybe even you, the idea of church, the idea of religion, the idea of connecting with God can be a little bit scary, can be a little bit intimidating, uh, or, or maybe for some of us, the, the idea of religion, the idea of church, the idea of these things, what you believe religiously ultimately isn't about doing something or, or doing anything right here and now. It's about what you believe and how that impacts what happens specifically at one time when you die. What happens when you die? The old and not very effective evangelism strategy of walking up to a total stranger and looking them in the eye and saying, do you know what would happen if you died today? And sometimes we can reduce down the Christian faith. We can reduce down the church. We can reduce down God himself to a set of ideas and beliefs that if we just believe them, if we just accept Jesus or pray the right prayer or believe the gospel, whatever that might mean, if we just do that, then we get to go to heaven when we die. It's a one-time thing for a one particular issue thing. But what we believe, what we see in the word of God as we read it as the church is that the gospel, or as it's translated, the good news about Jesus is not one thing. It's not just one little piece. It's not about just changing this little piece of our worldview so that we can go to heaven when we die. The gospel is not the minimum entry requirements into eternity. The gospel doesn't change one thing. 
the gospel changes everything. What we believe as a church and why our vision is that our city would know Jesus is that we believe Jesus is the center person, the centerpiece of the gospel story, of this good news that God loves humanity. He loves you and I, and he's actually doing something to save us. So we believe as a church that our mission, our vision is that our city would know Jesus because we don't believe that that reality changes one thing. We don't believe that that's just something that if we can get enough converts, we'll make sure people don't go to hell when they die. What we believe is that the gospel changes everything. And what we're going to see today in the narrative of the gospel of John and the life of Jesus and how he interacts with people is Jesus's conversation with one person in particular, a woman who he meets at a well. It's a very common, very popularized story that shows us so much of what Jesus is like. We don't know this woman's name. We know bits and pieces that we learn from the story about her own story. But it all begins with Jesus stepping out of Jerusalem and heading back north towards Galilee. Here's what it says in John chapter 4. You can read along on the screen or if you have your own Bible. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea. He left the kind of main city area and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near a field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. This is referring back to the Jewish patriarchs. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied and tired as he was from his journey, sat beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which is noon, middle of the day. So, so Jesus, he's aware, and if you've been following along in the series, you know that last week we saw a bit of strife come up. See, John the Baptist has followers, Jesus has followers, the Pharisees have followers, and there's all these kind of different groups and religious kind of sections having these conversations, having these debates, talking about who's got the right teaching, who's doing the religious thing right. There's all these conversations happening. We also know that a little while ago, Jesus went into the, the Jewish temple and began to flip tables and call people out and yell and build a whip. So there's all these things that are going on in Judea, in Jerusalem, that are causing this kind of strife. And Jesus is no dummy. He realizes it's time to probably get out of here. There's a little too much controversy and I'm going to head up to Galilee. And so he heads out. And, and if you're a Jewish person who wants to get away from political, religious drama, then the best place you could get away from all that would be Samaria. See, Samaria is this place that there was no good relationships between Samaritans and Jewish people. And we don't have tons of time to get into all the nature of that, but you've probably heard that. It says it right here in this story that we'll read in just a moment. But there was deep religious hurt, deep religious trauma, and deep mistrust and judgment between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. There was all this racial animosity. There was all this unwillingness between Jews and Samaritans to even interact. But as Jesus walks through Samaria, he doesn't get through as fast as he can. He sits down, tired, weary, and he encounters a woman and has one of the longest interactions, the longest single conversations we get to see with Jesus or with Nicodemus and with this woman at the well. We get to see this beautiful conversation that Jesus has with this woman. And it's one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. It shows us what Jesus is like, 
what the gospel is like and how Jesus meets people where they are. So what I want to do is I want to read the bulk of this story. I want to share a few observations with you. There's so much here that we won't be able to get to today, but just a few observations as we consider this story. So let me read and then we'll consider it together. Here's what it says as we carry on in the gospel of John chapter four. Here's what it says, starting in verse seven. A woman from Samaria had come to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman, she said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then in brackets, John tells us, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, as in you would have asked me, And he, that is I, would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And that well is deep. Where are you getting this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus responded and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman intrigued says to Jesus, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus looks at her and and says, go then, Call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have, the the man you are living with is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you, as in you, the Jewish people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jewish people, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that a Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the one who is speaking to you. Now, in this passage, in this story, there's so much to be drawn out. If there was ever a story that's worth your time and meditation, as the Psalms talk about what it looks like to meditate on the the word of the Lord day and night, this is a story that's worth it to do. This is a story that's worth it, even after this sermon, to go to sit in, to meditate on, to ask God to reveal to you what he wants to say to you through it. There's so much here. I'm always amazed by mature Christians, those who have followed Jesus for much longer than me, those who have much more education than me, those who have much more experience than me, the way they find joy in coming back to passages so many of us have read before, heard preached about before, and all these different things. 
And as you come back to those stories, as you meditate on those things, you see and you experience different elements or characteristics of God's love. There is so much beauty in who God is. You will not run that beauty dry. As you spend time in the word, whether it's this story or anything else, don't read your Bible without a pen or a pencil or a journal or something to write down what God is showing you. Don't read the Bible once through and go, now I know. Don't do a year of Bible school and then tap out and go, I get it now. But, but for the sake of today, as we look at this passage together, what I want to do is zoom out of the trees and take a look at the forest. And, and what I want to do with you is actually consider some of the big things that we see the, the big pieces of not just God's character, not just who God is or who this woman is, but how who Jesus is changes things. Because if our vision is that our city would know Jesus and we believe that it's Jesus himself who changes everything, that the gospel story of Jesus changes everything, then that must be true in this story as well. See, here's the reality that you need to know today. A true encounter with Jesus changes everything. You cannot meet the real Jesus. You cannot experience him. You cannot meet the Christ face to face and go, eh, interesting, but I don't know. It's not just a spiritual reality. It's not just a decision you make to, to change your eternal destiny. It's not less than those things, but it's much more than that as well. It's not one thing, it's everything. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, how we often treat it. Pray this prayer, believe these couple of things and you can go to heaven. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z or A to Z for those of us in Canada of Christianity. The gospel is the whole deal. As one pastor put it, the gospel is shallow enough for a child to swim in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown. And so what I wanna do is make a few observations of how it is that the gospel changes everything that we see in this story of this woman. So we have four that I wanna share with you today. The first is this, the gospel changes everything for all people. The first and most commonly noted reality of this passage, this story, is just how many barriers Jesus breaks through to reach this woman. It is just how many things that, that Jesus needs to get past in order to connect with the Samaritan woman at the well and offer this living water that he speaks of. We see Jesus break down a racial barrier. Jesus is with a Samaritan woman alone in the heat of the day. We see the gender barrier broken down. This is Jesus, a man alone with a woman who is not his wife. Culturally, that's very taboo. That's not something you want to do. When his disciples show up again, they're very concerned. Why is Jesus alone with this woman? We know from the rest of the story, she's a social outcast. She's come to the well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, which makes no sense. If you need water, you go in the early day so you have water to do your chores, to drink throughout the day, all those kind of things. The only reason she would be coming here, as so many have noted, is because she wanted to avoid the crowds most likely because of her moral failure. Because people talk, because people gossip, because people would have known that she was with her fifth husband. People would have known that she was living with a man she shouldn't have been living with. People would have known of her sexual brokenness. 
And you've likely heard and seen all these realities pointed out. And so I don't want to belabor the points that many of you have already heard. But what we need to see is the incredible implications that Jesus breaks down these walls. That Jesus sees these walls, that Jesus sees these barriers, and he goes through them. There is so much that people will point to and look at Christianity and say, what about this? What about this? What about the way Christians have treated women? What about the ways Christians have failed when it comes to issues like racism? What about the ways Christians have failed in the way that they have cared for those who disagree with them? What about this? What about that? But what we see in the life of Jesus, what we see in the mission and work of Jesus is a breaking down of barriers and walls in order to love people, not who are right, not who are perfect, not who have it all together, but people who are broken. Brennan Manning, a theologian, has this reflection where he says, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. That's true of him, that's true of this woman at the well, and that's true of both you and I. Why? Because what Jesus offers here is not a new system to become a good person. It's not a few life hacks to get good. It's not an infomercial for spiritual change. It's not even a new religion. What Jesus offers, according to his own words, is a gift. Verse 10, Jesus answered the woman. He said, if you knew what? The gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What is Jesus saying here? Grace is a gift. It's no longer grace if it is earned. Here's the most beautiful and most terrifying reality. If the grace of God is pure gift, then anyone has access to it any single person, your best friend and your worst enemy are both in the same exact position when it comes to the way in which God loves them. The person you think the least of and the person you think the most of are both equally there as candidates for God's grace. If grace is a pure gift, then anyone can experience it. It's interesting that John puts the story of this woman right next to the story of Nicodemus. And I just want to show you on some of these, uh, the slides that you'll see in just a second, some of the differences we see between this woman at the well who ends up becoming a missionary, comes up coming, giving, putting her faith in Christ and, and being a missionary to the Samaritan people in, in conjunction with Nicodemus, who we just recently looked at. See, Nicodemus, as you'll see, was, uh, was a Jewish person. He was the right uh, religion. He, was, he had all the advantages culturally. This woman at the well, she was not. She was not of the right blood. She was not of the right family. Racially, she was not the right picture of who God truly loved. And yet Jesus breaks through that barrier and speaks to her. We also see that um, Nicodemus is a man, which culturally in a patriarchal society comes with so many advantages, similar to how it does in ours to some extent. And we see him have all the advantages, all the power, all the ability to go get education that this woman wouldn't have got, to go sit in the synagogue that this woman wouldn't have got, to, to make sure he wasn't taken advantage of. And I don't know the full story of this woman, and I don't know what her participation in it, but there is like little doubt that she had been taken advantage of in order to have been with so many different men. We don't totally know, but what we know is that as a woman in that culture, she was at a great disadvantage. We also see that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. This woman, she's a social outcast. 
See, Nicodemus was this Pharisee who would have run with the right crowd. He would have had the right friends. He would have had a a small group that would have done Bible study. They know all these things together. He runs with the right people. He knows the right people. He's the right kind of person. This woman, she's alone in the heat of the day, a complete social outcast. And while Nicodemus would have been a moral example for others to look to, here's how you should follow God. This woman was a moral failure. And yet, we see Jesus meet this woman the same way he meets Nicodemus. We see Jesus meet this woman with none of those advantages and show her the very same grace, the very same message, and give her the very same invitation that Nicodemus received. Why? Because the grace of God is for everyone. Whether you're listening to this and you feel like you have your whole life together, and you know all the right answers, and you know all the right theology, and you've been doing this for a while, and you don't need this, and you're sick and tired of hearing sermons that you've heard before, and this, that, and the other thing, and you're, oh, John 4, I've heard this story a million times, yeah, 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 yeah. Whether you're there, and you think you've got it all together, or whether your life is an absolute mess right now, whether you feel totally unworthy of the grace of God, what you need to know is this. The requirement is thirst. The invitation of God is for everyone and what he invites us to, the requirement for the living water is not how good you are, is not your gender, is not your race, is not the language you speak, is not how much you went to Sunday school, it is not how much you give to a church. The requirement for the living water is this, thirst. Why? Because grace is a gift. Secondly, in this story, we see that the gospel changes everything through a process. Most of us uh, don't really like this one. We want immediate results. We want quick transformation. We want a radical shift of everything in the here and now. And I know that's me. I rush around all the time wanting to change things. But as you look at this story, look at how patient and gentle Jesus is with the woman as she goes through the process of what God is doing in your life. Jesus says to her in verse 16, When she asks for this water, when she hears this thing, her interest is piqued. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, because he already knew, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. This is awkward, isn't it? Here is this woman hearing this message, hearing this sort of evangelism that Jesus is doing and she hears about this living water and she gets a little bit interested and and she lets herself go from all the pain and shame that she carries. And for just a moment, she goes, I want some of that living water. And then Jesus says, go call your husband. And there that sin and shame is again. Now her sin's uncovered and we realize here the reason likely why she's come there in the middle of the day alone to get away from the eyes, to get away from the judgment, to get away from the sin and shame that she can't seem to carry, she can't seem to handle. And Jesus has showed up and he's broken down all these barriers and he's talking to her and he's interacting with her. And and, and there's all these walls that have been broken down, but this kind of sin, this kind of shame, it's too personal, it's too private. 
John 1, 9, at the very beginning of this series, Jonathan talked about this. Speaking of Jesus, John writes, the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Here's the problem with light. It reveals everything. Light is beautiful and amazing and gracious, but it also reveals all the dust. It also reveals all the cobwebs. There's a moment in each day when if it's a sunny day, the the light hits our house and comes through the windows and it's this glorious light and it's beautiful. And I love it and I sit, I just bask in it and drink a coffee and oh, this is so good. But, But the problem with that moment is that I can also clearly see everywhere I've ever spilled anything in my house. Everywhere that I don't dust, everywhere that I don't clean, I can see every mark and sin and scrape and bump in the wall and mark in the floor and all these different things. Light reveals everything. And just like this woman, you and I have areas in our life that we wish Jesus would not light up that we wanna put a cover over, that we want to just put off to the side, that we say things like that's private, that's nobody's business or whatever it may be, the addictions, the patterns of sin, those habits we cannot kick, the thing you did years ago that haunts you. Jesus's light uncovers it all. But, but this woman, while she's not a scholar like that other guy Nicodemus was, she, she doesn't really want to go there and, and watch what she does. She pivots, she deflects, she takes the conversation somewhere else. Jesus reveals this, lights this thing up. And, and the woman says to him, uh, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. As in to say, can we just have a religious conversation? Can we just talk theology for a minute? Let's not talk about my life. Let's not talk about what's going on in my life. Let, let's talk about religion. So, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She starts talking about religious thought instead of engaging what Jesus just said. Jesus goes for her heart. She moves it aside and brings it to a religious debate. She uses some spiritualized language to dodge the bullet of shame. And for many of us, religion has become a tool we use to cover up our shame. We've learned the right words to say and the right way to say it to never actually have to deal with the shame that we are carrying. Recently, I was out and about and I was chatting with someone. They asked me um, what I did and, and I told them I was a pastor. And, and they, the first question they asked, it was really, really interesting. I said, well, what do you believe in this kind of thing? And starting to get this conversation going and he goes, this person chatting with me, they go, oh, you're a Christian. Um, what do you think of Trudeau? What? <laughs> Now, my faith is going to indicate and have implications on how I look at politics and how I look at our country and all those types of things. But, but how do you go from, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, to, well, what do you think about Trudeau? See, it's a deflection. It's a move away. It's, I don't really want to talk about the personal realities and the personal implications on me. If I can just keep it at a surface level. If all religion is, is about who you vote for, is who you hate, is what you're against. How could you believe in this? How could you believe in that? If we can keep religion there, we'll never have to deal with our shame. Oftentimes, I believe the greatest barrier to your experiencing Jesus is not your sin, but how you cover up your sin with religious language that makes it seem like that sin is not there. To deflect and defer and to try and reject what Jesus is trying to do in your life. Do not use Christian language to push God out of your life. 
Jesus hears this deflection, he, he kind of calls it out. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. He says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, as if to say, hey, that's not what this is about. You worship, Jesus says, what you do not know. We, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That is to say, the Old Testament is the story that God was and is telling still. But the hour is coming, Jesus said, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that a Messiah is coming, he who is the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus responds in no uncertain language, I who speak to you am he. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Patiently, slowly, he continually moves past the barriers, not only the ones that existed culturally, but the ones that this woman had put up herself. God's love for this woman will not be deterred either by her sin or her changing of the subject. She keeps deflecting. He keeps coming back to the core reality. Jesus is not avoiding the truth. He will bring all things to the light, but it's the light that has the power to restore. The light that has come into the world, John 1.5 tells us that cannot be overcome by the darkness. That's what John 1, 5 tells us. The light shines into the darkness, but the darkness does not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome it because it is stronger and greater than that darkness. And while she keeps deflecting, while she keeps pushing back, Jesus keeps pushing further and deeper in. And that process that, that patient and slow work that God is doing to bring about change in each person's life looks different for every single person. Because each of us carries baggage, each of us has walls put up, each of us has barriers put up over which God will break through and climb over and open the doors that we have tried to lock through which he will crash no matter what that process or timeline may look like. Jesus is committed to bringing about new life in us. Um, this spring, Jaleesa bought a little basil plant for us to have around our house and had been given instructions. It was a tiny little basil plant, but it was potted already. So we were like, we got a little bit of a head start. And they said, don't put it out until it's at least 10 degrees at all times outside. And so it starts this basil plant. It's in our house and, and it's like looking pretty sad. And, and Jaleesa tells me, don't take anything off it. Just let it grow. We got to get this thing going. And we're watching. And it was a bit of a cold spring for a while. So we couldn't put it outside. And then we did for a little bit and it just looked really sad. And but then it started to look a little bit better and it grew and it got nicer and we were able to use it. And I had a couple pizzas with fresh basil and it was amazing and all these kinds of things. But then we go away for a trip and when we come home, the heat had just destroyed it and it was shriveled up and gross and ew, that there's no way. But then there was some water added and some fertilizer and Jaleesa took care of this little basil plant. All of a sudden it becomes this huge, blooming, beautiful, we don't know what to do with that much basil. When I think about it, it reminds me of Jesus's parable of the sower, right? Some of the seeds get eaten before they grow. Some go in shallow soil and grow quick, but are choked out. Some grow on fertile soil and do really well. But the point is not to say, here are the four categories of how people grow and change. The point is to say this. Every single person, just like every single organism that grows, grows in process grows in process that may be mysterious to us. And here's the principle that I want you to hear today. 
we have to stop giving up on people. We have to stop giving up on people who God does not give up on. There is people in your life who you have written off. They've walked away from faith. They've completely abandoned what they said they believe. They're making decisions that you just cannot believe that they would be making. You've tried to share the gospel. You've tried to care for them. You've tried to do these things. And you've, even if you've never said it out loud, you've given up. I've given up. I've gone, that person is beyond reaching. But Jesus doesn't give up on people, so neither should we. Thirdly, what I want you to know is the gospel changes everything because it's powerful. Because it's powerful. Jesus uses the illustration of water. If you've ever been really thirsty, which many of us have, I remember playing a soccer game where I forgot my water bottle and it wasn't until later in the game when I was able to actually get a drink and we were short players and so I played the whole game and a professional soccer player can play a 90 minute game, no problem. I am not a professional soccer player. 90 minutes going on the field is just too much for me and I remember at the end of that game getting to my water bottle and just like chugging and dumping water on my head and drinking as much as I could. And I, and I couldn't just take just one sip. Why? Because when we're thirsty, we become desperate for the thing that will quench our thirst. We don't drink the water because it's what we need to do. It's not a biological decision because I need to evolutionarily survive and water is the way in which I do that. When we thirst, we're desperate. And when we get a taste of it, you can't just have one sip. So it is with the grace of God, Jesus tells us. It changes everything because it is sweet. It is water to thirsty lips. Your soul needs the life of Jesus like your body needs water. It's not optional. It's not something that you can go without. And when you truly experience it, it will truly change you. And that's what Jesus says. He describes it not just as a well, but as a bubbling spring in one translation, as living water that actually flows, something that is constant, something that is permanent, something that comes from a source that will never run dry. And when we look at change, when we look at what the world tells us, the world kind of gives us two kind of ways that you can change. The first is willpower, right? Summon up your strength, pull up your bootstraps, handle it, shut down your desires, ignore them, press them off to the side, do your best not to mess up. By sheer personal strength, you can avoid what you must avoid and you can change this way. Or on the other side, the world tells us you can change, you can grow, you can become the person you're meant to be through self-fulfillment. Forget willpower, forget rejecting these things. Step directly into whatever it is you love, whatever feels good, whatever looks good, whatever you desire in the moment. You will be happy. You will be the person that you were meant to be when you get everything that you have ever wanted. Become your authentic self and live your truth. The problem, both are superficial. Both are too weak to sustain true change. They might impact our behavior, but both will leave you hungry for something more. Willpower will leave you exhausted and grouchy and miserable. Hating things is no way to truly change our souls. Hate cannot change us, but love can. Pursuing self-fulfillment, yeah, it might feel good for a while, 
But how many people do you know who have pursued everything they said they wanted and left a body, a trail of bodies and pain behind them? Whether that's their families, whether that's their coworkers, whether that's people who they trusted, all these things can hurt people. Both these options will leave you thirsty. They might be a well that you can go to, but they'll never be a living spring. And, and the question I wonder about is what wells are you going to? Because we all have thirst. We all desire certain things. We all long to change. We all know there's something in us that we don't want to be there. There's something we want to change about ourselves. And how are you trying to change? Through willpower? Through gritting your teeth and doing everything you can? Through trying to live your best life now? through trying to make all your own dreams come true, how are you trying to change? Because the gospel is living water. And if you're thirsty, you don't just need some rank, nasty water from a well that runs dry. You need living water that never runs out. See, Jesus offers himself as the only real solution to the thirst. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us these things. And Jesus says to her, it's me. I am the one who can provide you living water. The only real source of water that won't make you thirsty again. The only well that will never run dry. The only way that you and I can change out of love not fear, out of love for others, not just love for ourselves. The only way that we can be transformed that will not consume us along the way. And that is God's invitation to each one of us today. And finally, we see that the gospel changes everything as it pours out. Continuing on in the story, it says that the disciples came back. They marveled or they were a little bit freaked out when they see Jesus talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and she went away into the town and she said to the people, come see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? And all the people went out of the town and they were coming to him. And as the disciples returned, confused and concerned, why is Jesus speaking with this woman? Something has clicked for her. She leaves the water jar. She runs into town experiencing the living water that Jesus is speaking of in such a way that it overflows and she runs into town. All her sin, all her shame, all the social outcasts, all the judgmental looks, it doesn't matter anymore. She's found something greater. She's found something better and she cannot help but tell other people, you've got to come and see. You've got to see this. You've got to hear what this man is saying. He knows me. He knows my story, and yet he loves me anyway. He welcomes me and invites me into something. See, I think in my experience, and maybe this is true in yours, the very best evangelists, the very best people at reaching people with the message of the gospel are people who just became Christians. I watch this all the time in our youth ministry. Students who come to know Christ are the very first to invite their friends to say, you've got to hear about this. Because when we, that fire has begun in us, we get this desire to tell people we can't hold it in. And the longer we go following Christ, the more bored we get and the, the more we start to treat evangelism like all these different things. But here's the reality. Evangelism 
is not a task. It's not a duty. We cannot look at evangelism as this thing that we have to do. And it's, if I'm a good Christian, I got to tell other Christians about it. If we have tasted the living water that Jesus offers us, it overflows. Evangelism cannot be simply something that we do because, well, somebody else is going to do it. Or maybe I'm supposed to do it. Uh, evangelism is, is not somebody else's job. Evangelism is the call of every single person who follows Jesus, not as task and duty, but as an overflow of what Jesus has done in your life. And finally, and this is really, really important for us, as a large church on a corner in a city, doing lots of different things, doing our very best to reach people, evangelism is not a strategy. We take away people's dignity when we treat them like projects to bump our numbers and say, how many people raised their hand? How many people did this? And there's nothing wrong with that. I want to celebrate deeply every time someone makes a decision and moves from the domain of darkness into the domain of life. But if all evangelism is, is trying to boost our numbers so that we can say to others, look at how big our church is, look at how many people we've led to Christ, we take away people's dignity and we reduce them down to a statistic. No one is a statistic. Every number has a name and a story that matters to God. Evangelism at its core for this woman and for you and I has to be an overflow. It has to be overflowing of what God has done in our life. That bubbling spring, that living water that flows, eventually flows its way by the work of the Spirit out of us and into the world. Jesus then speaks with his disciples He's chatting with them and he's, they want him to eat and they want him to do all these things and, and we don't want to get all the way into this part of the passage right now. But, but Jesus ends up saying to them, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering the fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Or in another translation, Jesus says, what joy awaits the one who sows and the one who reaps. Evangelism should bring us joy Evangelism, according to Sri Lankan theologian D.T. Niles, is, as you maybe heard, one beggar showing another beggar where to get bread. If you had access to the living water, if you had access to the food, and in the hunger and thirst you see others, you invite them to know it. And that's what this woman did. A brand new believer, an immature believer, still in the midst of her sin and struggle and social baggage. She goes, leaving all that to the side, looking at those around her and saying, you have to hear this. You need to hear this. It was not this woman's theology or perfection or self-righteousness or argumentation or political views that led people to Jesus. It was her story. It was her story the tool for evangelism, and we can talk about tools and practicalities all the live long day, but the thing that this woman had to say was this is my story. This is what God has done in my life. And so here's my question for you today, follower of Jesus. What is your story? What is your story? What is the story of how God has changed you and brought living water into your life? 
The woman goes into the town. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. If I gave you that sentence, come and see a man who, how would you fill in that blank? As you think about your own story, your own testimony, the only reality of what God has done in your life, how would you fill in that blank? Come and see the man who has set me free from addiction. Come and see the one who has saved my marriage and my family. Come and see the one who set me free from the shame and the anxiety and the depression. Come and see the one who. How do you fill in that blank? And the story closes. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of this word. But they said to the woman, listen to this, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know now that this is indeed the savior of the world. And so it's this woman, not the religious leader Jesus met with named Nicodemus back in Jerusalem at the center of religion, at the center of philosophy, but this woman in a small town in the middle of nowhere with none of the right cultural markers, she becomes the most effective and influential evangelist in the gospel of John. And as people come to Jesus, they too experience his words, his teaching, and the living water that he offers for their lives. They go through the very same process that she does, whatever that might look like for them. They too experience thirst and hunger. And this woman with none of the qualifications, with none of the right things, she becomes the one to point them to where they can find it, to where they can find the water that will satisfy their souls. As we close, Jesus said to this woman, when she asked about where to worship and what that would look like, Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, a commentator notes that every time Jesus uses the word hour in the gospel of John, he's referring to one thing. He's referring to his death on a cross. Jesus here is not just saying in general that God has stepped in and is doing something. He is saying that through his work on the cross, through his ultimate sacrifice, that he becomes the new temple. He becomes the new priest. He becomes the new way in which we worship and experience God. This woman wants a religious answer and Jesus says, I am that answer. I am that Messiah, I am the temple, I am the priest, I am the sacrifice, I am the path by which you will experience God's love. How? Because Jesus went to the cross and on the cross he said these words, I thirst. Jesus thirsted that we might experience the living water. God in the flesh, the light that comes and that the darkness cannot overcome, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of Man, he himself experiences the ultimate thirst of being cut off from God so that we might be reunited to that flow of living water. What sin has cut off, Jesus thirsted that it might be restored. How can Jesus offer this woman or you or I the living water that can only come from a holy God? only through his own sacrifice to take on that thirst. So the question I wanna ask you today is this, are you thirsty?
because the gospel changes everything and it is water to quenched lips. Let me pray for you as we close. Dear Jesus, I thank you for each person listening to this message. I thank you that you love each one of them, that whatever process that they are in, that you are at work. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would move and will and work to draw them to yourself, to show each one of us what it means to experience the living water that you offer. And Lord Jesus, we give you all glory, all honor, and all praise as the one who went to the cross on our behalf that you thirsted, that you took on the pain and the suffering to reunite us with the water that flows out. We pray, Lord Jesus, that as the water fills us up, the water of your spirit, of being made pure, of being made clean, of being made new in your image, Lord Jesus, would you, Holy Spirit, work to overflow in us that water that we might be able to tell others, come and see what Jesus has done in my life. Lord Jesus, we invite you to move and to will and to work in our lives and in others' lives that our city would know Jesus. So Jesus, we give this time to you. We thank you for who you are. We rejoice and we praise your name in your precious name, Lord. Amen.